Hi, I'm Jeff Johnston, host of the Living Undeterred podcast. This is a reminder that we're going on tour next summer. Yes, that's right. We're going on tour. The Living Undeterred U.S. Tour 2022. We're leaving on May 9th next summer. We're going to every state and we're raising a million dollars. That's the plan to change the narrative on mental health, substance abuse, and addiction. We need your help though. I cannot do this alone. I know there's a lot of people out there interested in this uh, project of ours. You can go to our website, www.livingundeterred.com. We need volunteers. We need state partnerships. We need sponsors. We need as many people as we can to get out there and help those people that need help to change the narrative on mental health, substance abuse, and addiction. Again, go to livingundeterred.com and click on the Living Undetoured icon, and all the information is there. Again, thank you very much for the support, and as always, keep living undeterred. Hello, I'm Jeff Johnston. Welcome to the Living Undeterred podcast. I am excited to finally get to record this episode with Daniel Ross. Him and I have been trying for quite a while to hook up, and we had something scheduled, but the first time ever in doing the Living Undeterred podcast, I absolutely forgot, and he was hanging on, waiting for me, and so in other words, I just blew him off, and uh, I felt terrible, but I didn't apologize, but we reset it, and then we had a time zone issue, and uh, <laughs> we're finally here, so we finally made it, and I'm really excited because in our pre-interview we had a couple weeks ago... Uh, your story is quite amazing, and I want to make sure that the um, the followers and, and listeners and watchers of the Living Undeterred podcast can hear another story of somebody who is really trying to live undeterred. So with that, Daniel, why don't you introduce yourself real quickly and a little background. You're from Indiana. Is that correct? Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I live in Jeffersonville, Indiana. I'm originally from Mississippi, and I lived in the South my whole life, nearly. I've lived up here the last 11 years. I lived in Florida, numerous cities in Florida, lived in Houston, Texas, and I dabbled into drugs at a much too young age of five to six years old. And yeah, when I heard that the first time you told me that, my jaw dropped because five to six years old, you should be playing t-ball with your dad somewhere in a you know little league ballpark and not not be dabbling with drugs. Yes, sir. And that's the thing. I was playing t-ball, but I was high, <laughs> and it was unbelievable that I had to look back now and think of a five six year old kid being high hitting a ball off of a t-ball at a game in front of so many adults and other children not having a clue and just me being me that that was the norm for me though because of my older brother who thought it was cool and funny to get me high and stoned in front of all of his friends so i started doing it by myself on the side and it just it, it steamrolled from there. I mean, I still can't imagine five years old. That that's just that's. I have a hard time wrapping my hands around that, Daniel. That's that's hard for me to imagine, especially your older brother. You know, thinking that this this was going to be funny or cute or whatever, and getting a, a a child high. I mean, was it just marijuana, or was there other drugs involved, or? You know, and this stemmed from somewhere. I mean, you obviously your brother didn't do this because he loved and cared about you. Something there was something in that relationship that was dysfunctional, or he wasn't confident, or had some issues with um, codependency, or something. You know, it, I believe it was mainly my mom and dad split up, and he and we had okay. we were going through that phase, and he chose the drug route rather than, you know being an older brother and showing me how to properly live as a child right but it, it how much older was he daniel uh five years about five years so, older than me obvious so if he was 10 then he was oh yeah so he was doing drugs himself at 10 yes it was just a little where, where were all these drugs coming from he was well we had us at the time we had a, a little 
woman that my mom was friends with, her name was Carol, and she was giving him the marijuana, and he was smoking it with me, and then she would give him free little bags, and he would bring them home, and then it started with, I got drunk for the first time at six years old off a of red, wow. red dog beer, and it was the worst tasting beer I'd ever had. I haven't drank it since. I think they stopped making it, but they had Red Dog and Red Wolf. And I still remember how disgusting that was, but I remember being all drunk and stumbling around, and he thought it was funny, and my mom was... I, I think she was out, went somewhere that night or something. We were at Carol's. And we were out back, and we were drinking with some older guy that I guess was one of Carol's friends, and he didn't have a problem with a you know six seven year old getting drunk. Like I don't. That's, that's amazing. amazing. Yeah, I, I look back now, and if I would have been an adult witnessing that, I would have immediately stepped in. Like that is just not right. There must be something with the word red because my first experience with substance abuse that I can even recall, my first traumatic experience was one time in, and I moved in fifth grade, so it had to have been in third or second grade. My older brother, Steve and Scott, you know, were doing the cool older brother things and they were chewing tobacco. And I remember, I remember my mom and dad were at home. We were sitting in the bathroom and my brother had a pouch of Red Man chewing tobacco. Yeah. So you mentioned Red Dog and Red Wolf. Well, mine, mine was Red Man. <laughs> I remember the Red Man. It came, it came in I a, know, a bag. Pouch. It came in yeah. a bag, and you opened it up, and yeah. you dip in. And I remember it smelled so damn good. It was all moist. And yeah. My brother's, my brother's chewed skull chewing tobacco. Yeah. And it was, it was the loose leaf one. It wasn't in the little, little um whatever you call them now, Pat, what little, whatever. Um, And I remember opening it up and my brothers put the chew in, you know, when they were doing their thing. And I took a leaf out and I put it in my mouth and I swallowed it. Uh... And I turned, my, I turned to my brothers and I go, what am I supposed to do? And they go, you didn't swallow it. I go, yeah. And I tell you, man, I was so freaking sick. I puked and puked. And I've never chewed tobacco since that day. Oh, no. So maybe, maybe there's something in this is, Get your kids, you know, chewing tobacco when they're four and let them swallow a bag and let them puke. You know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's the way we fight this because all the other stuff seems to not be working. And obviously, I'm being sarcastic. I'm being sarcastic. But but that was my indoctrination to, to substance abuse. And uh, I never smoked and chew, I never smoked and never chewed tobacco. And I have to think that experience I had in third or fourth grade had something to do with my my bad experience with that. And then, okay, and then let me say this. After getting drunk for the first time, just two short years later, I snorted my first line of cocaine. Come so, on. So at the age of nine, I'd snorted cocaine. Holy cow. That's and, crazy. And I remember how nut. and I lived in Florida, so it was probably fresh off the boat because of all the smuggling of drugs in Florida and I remember my mouth and face got so numb and my brother was sitting there coaching me telling me hold my note hold my head back and pull my nostrils apart and suck in really hard and I did that and my throat was so numb that I could barely breathe. You and I didn't discuss this in the pre-interview, so I'm not really sure where this is going to go, but I have to throw it out there. So where's your relationship with your brother today? I have nothing to do with him. He's He's been in and out of jail since I was 10, 11 years old. He was a got on juvenile probation, and then he got on adult probation as soon as he turned 18. And I think he's been on probation probably three-fourths of his life. He's now nearly 40 years old. He's currently locked up. And he has been locked up at least 40 to 50 times. And he's been to several rehabs. He's been to five or six halfway houses. 
and it just nothing seems to work with him. It's just like he gets out goes right back to the same group you got to change your people places and things that's one of the first yeah. things they teach you and they teach you to not only you know be a sponge in life and soak in the information you gather through every AANA meeting he would go in there and cross his arms and sit back in the chair and not care while the thousands of AA and NA meetings I've been to, I've actually listened to these people and heard their dramatic and, and traumatizing experiences. And I've heard of people selling their yachts for drugs and selling their oh, yeah. mansion homes for drugs and selling their coops and Bentleys and just the the most tear-dropping stories you would ever hear. Let's let's peel back a little bit because when I first came across you on LinkedIn, what, what drew me into your story the most was you were very passionate or impassioned about um, having a platform to tell your story. Now, you're 34 years old. I'm 55, so you are, you're way ahead of me. And I didn't really start being vulnerable just till the last couple of years publicly. But... I admire what you were doing and you were, you were pretty much aggressive and Hey, I want to be on your podcast. I want to be on, I want to tell you didn't have any clinical background. You don't have a PhD in psychotherapy. You're not a neurologist. You're not a theologian. You know, you're not, you know, you don't have this resume that a lot of people have when they're out there trying to get on podcasts. But I tell you what, your story is as compelling story as I had heard. And it gets even more compelling when you told me that your mom and you overdosed on the same day. Tell me about that. On the same day, it was July 30th or July 31st of 2003. I, it was a week after my birthday. I'd been partying all week. I had did so much cocaine that the doctors told me I had enough cocaine in my body to kill 10 human beings and I had enough pills in my system to kill 30 horses I had Oxycontin in my system. I had Loratabs. I had Xanax. I had Valium. I had cocaine I drank some rum that was so old it was red That's how old this rum was and I drank that and I I over, I guess I just fell asleep on my bed, and if it wouldn't have been for my buddy Joey coming and opening up my window like he normally did, and he threw something at me, and I didn't budge, and he said, that's weird. So he climbed through my window, and he said he started to shake me, and I was making a... <gasps> noise and that my eyes were flickering back and forth and he said he started screaming for somebody in my house well my dad was in his room and my mom was in the bathroom right across the hall from my bedroom and she had already overdosed so when they called the paramedics for one overdose They'd went to open the bathroom door and they couldn't because she was wedged against the door. So they had to pretty much push their way in and revive her. Well, I was in a four-day coma and she was in a two-day coma. But mine was so severe, I had to learn how to walk again. I had to learn how to use my arms properly. Uh, my speech, it was like I was drunk, like I slurred in my speech, and I couldn't really remember half of what was going on. But then the older I've gotten now, the more I've, you know, been able to look back and remember bits and pieces. And I was partying with friends that night, and I snorted wow. way too much cocaine, and it caused me to overdose. And I spent two months in the hospital at Sacred Heart, and they took really good care of me. 
I did physical therapy there for a little bit. And then from there, I went to Tampa, Florida and did even more physical therapy. And then from there, I was taken out of my parents' custody, put into the state of Florida's custody. And I, I was sent to a boy's home in Pensacola something I didn't know too much about. I didn't know too much about Pensacola. I was from, I'm not scared to say it, I was from Fort Walton Beach. I was from Fort Walton Beach, Destin area, partying all the time. And I went, so all that with my mom still in the hospital while all this is going on was killing me. And I was on probation on top of all this. So I get violated and sent away for 10 months, you know, two months after going into this boy's home. And I can barely walk. I I could barely do anything. And it, it was insane. It was the most insane experience. Hey, could I have you do one thing? Just... Uh, the camera a little bit more that way. So I can get you a little more there, yeah, right about there. That's good. That's good. Um, so let me go back to, so your mom overdosed in 03, but then she soon passed away right after that, correct? Yes. She passed away the following year in the same, nearly the same month we'd overdosed. She passed away in August 27, 2004. And I was okay. six weeks away from getting out of my program. Wow, and I I had literally just went on a home visit from my program. They allowed me one home visit, a Friday afternoon through a Monday morning, and I remember the last conversation I had with her. She grabbed my hands and she started crying her eyes out, and she said, "I'm sorry, I've been such a horrible mother. I should have." been there for you and she got really emotional and it touched me and it going back to the program was so hard but yeah you know you gotta push forward you gotta stay positive you can't really you just gotta move forward like so how old were you when she died daniel i was uh I just turned 17. Yeah, so I can certainly relate with my two boys, Ian and Roman, because their their mom, my wife of 21 years, and anyone that follows this knows what happened. She passed away as well about four months ago, and they were they were uh, 18 and 20. But when their older when their when their older brother died, they were 13 and 15, and those are very impressionable ages. And not only are you going through your own hormonal issues and your own questioning certain things then then you lose your older brother who's normally should have been a mentor like in your case your older brother should have been your mentor and then you lose your mom like in your case your mom as well for the pretty much well we'll leave it at that um and again you have at 34 years old now been able to look back on your life and instead of saying woe is me I'm going to get drunk. I'm going to I'm going to commit a, I'm going to commit a robbery or a felon. I'm going to lie to people. You found a way to say, "You know what? I'm going to take care of myself first. I'm going to get myself strong and then I'm going to open up to new relationships and but be very protective of those relationships because people say that you become the five closest people in your life is pretty much who you are. And so you want to be very careful that you pick five people that you aspire to be or challenges you challenges you to be a better person. But I think what you're doing, Daniels, heroic would be an understatement, man, because I mean, man, you've got so many reasons, so many excuses to be doing other things right now than being on podcast talking about sobriety. Now, how long have you been sober? And is this something that you uh, you continually fight every day. Yeah, it, it's an everyday fight. It, it really is. Um, it, nobody ever forgets their sobriety date. I got sober on July twenty third, two thousand and nine. Oh wow! And awesome, I, I got sober on my birthday, and 
uh, rather than you know going out and getting plastered that was my sobriety date and i've been so proud to say that you know and i gotta tell your some listeners that you know are thinking to themselves well why can't my kid just stop because it's it's not that easy it is a disease it is it is almost like your body can't do anything until you have that drug in you especially Mm -hmm. for people who use heroin cocaine laura tabs oxy they literally can't get out of bed or go to the store without having a little bit in them and i've i've had the the pleasure of meeting tens of thousands of different people and i've i've been so proud to say you know i've lived in so many different states and i've learned so many cultures and positivity is what gets you through life if you think positive do positive and remain positive and lay your head on the pillow on your pillow at night knowing you did something good you will have nothing but good results and if there's people out there saying oh well i've been good my whole life and nothing it's coming because karma is real and i believe in karma and uh, like i had like my brother for instance he just wrote my grandma some ridiculous letter saying he's found god but that is the 19th letter she has gotten from him where he's found god and i i that I just I, some people honestly I don't think I think once they reach that jailhouse mentality, there's they can't get past it. They're they they just feel so I, I, I guess they're so they're so their self confidence is such in the gutter that they can't get right. out of it. I remember you telling me when I first met you. You said because I was telling you my story and you, and you said, well, that's awesome. I, you know, I appreciate you being vulnerable. And you said, Hey Jeff, I just want you to know nothing's off limits. You're like, I, I can, I can talk about anything. So I'm going to ask you about your dad because I think, I think of my two boys. So I, I'm putting you back at this age when you were 14, 15, 16, 17. And, and I'm not tooting my own horn, but as much of a role model I've been to my two boys to, to quit drinking, to write a book, to start a nonprofit, to do a podcast. I mean, I'm trying to show my boys how to live an inspired life, not tell them. You didn't have that, and you didn't have your mother's support, and you didn't have your older brother's support. So how in the hell, how in the hell did you not join them, I guess? I mean, it's mind-boggling to me, because where did all your support come from? Then, It didn't seem like you had any. Well, really, it, it mainly for me, I had to raise myself as a child. So I had to grow up at a very early age. And I met some of the most wonderful people, even in my 10-month, two-day program that had barbed wire everywhere like we were in prison. But there was a, a man in there, Mr. Johnson, and he every day read me something from the Bible. He would tell me something positive. And then I have my 91-year-old grandmother in Houston who has let me live with her three different times. She, I just talked to her the other day, and the door is always open for me to just go back to grandma's. But, you know, if I feel like she needs the help, I will go there, and I will live with her. I will uproot my life, and she has done so much for me that I would pay it back for her because that's how much she means to me. I have a, I have a question for you, and I'm not sure it'll be a tough question, but I have to ask you. But I, uh, I was speaking with someone the other day, and they have uh, a 34 year old son. I think he's 34, right around your age, in and out of rehab, struggling with all the collateral damage that goes with being an alcoholic or a substance abuse user, heroin, everything. And I've talked to her on the phone a number of times and 
the same theme is there. How, how can I help this person? How, how can I get them in a facility where they can get help? How can, what can, and I'm like, I wish I could just say, you know, something's going to click or you got to tough love them or you got to, you got to unconditional love them, which I hate that term. Uh, but, but, you know, I mean, now you are that person, but, but you're on the other side of the fence. You know, you, you, you've, you've stopped all this stuff. You've seemed to be in the right, the right direction, but yet you admit that you battle this every day. What do you tell these parents out there that are saying, I want my son to be Daniel Ross. I want him to have seen why I want to see why their choices are very poor and the consequences are, are, are the main thing they should be focusing on. What do you tell somebody who's really struggling with a child that simply isn't interested in bettering their life? Well, first of all, if he's an alcohol user, he goes to nothing but AA meetings. If he's a narcotic user, a meth, whatever it is, NA. Yeah. Because... And one thing, one thing we should say is she, too, because in this environment we're in, too, we, we got to be careful about always saying he. People may... Uh, maybe offended by that. So they, I guess, is a better word. If if they, I say he all the time too. I'm just old school. But uh, but I think if they have an issue, uh, then they need to go to AA. You say. I guess let let me pinpoint this. The last person I talked to, she was very critical in the facilities not starting with mental health. In other words, their son was an alcoholic. Their son was an addict. Their son abused all these things. But the issue was a mental health issue. But it seemed like the assessment wasn't there. It was difficult to get that diagnosis. They just um, wanted to like bypass that. But do you see issues with that where the mental health facilities or the organizations out there catering to people like you um, aren't looking at the mental health part of it as seriously as they should? Yeah, a lot of them don't. A lot of them are there to collect that insurance money and get you out of there. And then you'll actually run across some good ones that want to take you under their wing and help you in any way possible. And it also helps the parents to go to Al-Anon meetings because they mm-hmm. learn about, you know, drug use and why people use drugs and why people would, you know, use it as a Band-Aid. They would use drugs because that's what... A lot of people are hurting so bad or they think about a suppressed memory that they haven't gotten out. So I'd say if if anybody or, you know, if anybody's having an issue with drugs or understanding drugs, I think they should definitely check out an Al-Anon meeting. And all you'd have to do is Google it in your area, and I'm sure they do it virtually. You could even talk, have your son, you know, admit it to a, a therapist that could possibly get to the root of the issue of why they're using. Because a, what, do you, what do you do about the person who just simply doesn't want any help? You, they, for, okay, I have a little story for you. My uncle had hit rock bottom. He was 38. He was sleeping on a park bench, and he had the shoes stolen off of his feet. Well, then, yeah. within a, within 18 months, he was a, a certified therapist. He was helping people, getting them off the streets. And some people just need to hit rock bottom. And then some people, like my... I have to use my brother because I have literally been watching him for 25, 30 years destroy himself. And yeah. he was a heck of an athlete. He was a, he's a good-hearted person. And he, he meant well whenever he was sober. But as soon as that first Oxycontin went up his nose or, you know, anything, he would just change totally. And there's just some people out there that, you know, to understand the drug, you need to either research it, go to an Al-Anon meeting, or, you know, just have your son, son, daughter, um, you know, your cousin, your uncle, whoever you're worried about, have them go to a specialist. 
You know, I hear so much in the uh, rehab uh, world when you have the addicted person and you have somebody, you have collateral damage. So you have a, a spouse or you have a, a, a child that really loves the person that's, say, an alcoholic or a drug addict. And and you get you get kind of thrown in your face. Well, you don't you don't care about me or judge me too much or, you know, I, you know I'm your son. You should love me unconditionally. And that term is thrown around very haphazardly today. And I, I wrote a blog a while back called Unconditional Love with a question mark because the way I look at it, Daniel, see what you think about this. This is aimed at all the parents out there that are just absolutely sick and tired of this. And they've, they've had their, their life is so miserable now that they're considering suicide themselves to get out of the situation of an addicted child. I mean, it's, it's that bad. Uh, I say to them, Unconditional love doesn't exist. Your love is limitless, but it has conditions. In other words, in other words, I have enough love in me to love you, all, all the love in the world, but I have conditions because unconditional love by definition means you can F me over a million times, but I'm still going to love you. You can treat me like dog shit and I'm going to still love you. That seems like a very, that's an unhealthy relationship to be in. If you allow somebody to basically torture and abuse you and everything that goes with that, but but you're going to love them unconditionally. I, I call BS on that. I don't like that term. I've never liked it. Um, I, I, I think at the end of the day, when you're in relationships with somebody who is an addict, you need to lay down the line and say, you know what? I, I love you unconditionally, yet my love has limits. I mean, I'm sorry. I love you limitless, but my, my love has conditions. And um, th- those conditions are you don't, you don't lie, you don't steal, you don't cheat, you don't do all these things. And you mentioned rock bottom. And rock bottom for your brother was having his, student sh- his shoes stolen off a park bench. Rock bottom for some people is death. And I don't, I don't know how else to term it that way. And I hate to sound so um, fatalistic, I guess, in my approach to this. But the hardest thing I've ever witnessed in my life is the inability to get someone to see destructive behavior and there's not a damn thing you can do about them to change. It's sad. Um, a lot of these drugs nowadays are cut with fentanyl. Um, yeah. They use dry human feces. They'll cut it with that. They cut it with rat poison. They'll cut it with anything they can get their hands on i've even heard of them crushing up birth control pills and tylenol and mixing it in so you know it weighs it more and that's just sad like you drugs aren't the same especially as as opposed to back in the day when people just got them and sold them and nowadays though they're wanting to become millionaires overnight so they're cutting their stuff so much that if you even do a line this big you're going to be dead and i say it's not worth the risk i've seen story after story of people that have recreationally just tried you know anything from xanax to you know even marijuana uh, a joint with fentanyl like you said laced in it and it's just instantaneous. I mean, you know, I think um, uh, through some of the stories I've seen, it's it's a mind-boggling to me that kids would dabble in this stuff today knowing that it's Russian roulette. And back in the day when I was in high school, nobody ever died, man. I mean, nobody ever died. If they died, it was it was a car accident that, you know, a deer, a deer ran in front of them or, or maybe they were drinking or something. But it wasn't it wasn't like they were at a party and somebody just took a pill and all of a sudden your best friend just keeled over and died. That, that never happened. Now you're seeing parties in LA where three or four people are dying in one night, you know, and parents, parents are losing, you know, there are only two children at one party in one night, you know, um, just stuff that, that you think would shake everybody and say, Hey, you know, this is serious shit. We got to start understanding, like you said, the why behind this, when Seth died, I think there was 60,000 overdoses in the United States. And now five years later, it's 96 or something last year. So, I mean, we're looking at, we're looking at a 50% increase uh, in five years. And I don't, I don't think it's going 
in the other direction anytime soon. Do you? I mean, and and how do we get this? Th- how do we get this thing fixed? And this is one of the reasons why I'm doing this tour next summer, uh, going around the country trying to raise money and awareness because I can't wrap my hands around that we know more about all this stuff. We know more about everything we put in our mouth, yet we're dying, we're unhappy, we're miserable. Why? Why Why do you think our society is so unhappy today? I, th- I think, okay, COVID, first of all, had a big part into it. And people, when the government just started giving money out like candy, People were saying, I'm not going to my $9 an hour job when I can make, you know, 600 extra dollars per month. Or, right. I, but really, and then you have your positive people that, you know, chose to work out at home, do renovations. I'm in the middle of about to paint my apartment right now. I mean, uh-huh. so you can choose to do things like that. Or you can choose to go spend five, six hours on the phone hunting down for a drug you want. And you you just you have to change your whole mindset. Even if it's waking up and coming out and smoking a cigarette first. Try coming out, you know, getting you a bottle of water, lifting weights for a minute, and then going about your day. Or taking a jog or doing something positive and what are a few things what are a few, what are a few things you do what, what are some personal things you do each day to stay to stay on the road that you're on every morning i get my 40 that 40 pound dumb uh little dumbbell and i lift i do 100 every morning and then awesome. i i pick days where it's beautiful outside it's been hot lately but it, then again it's been nice here in jeffersonville over the last couple of days but i'll go on a jog you know i'll get in on my linkedin and help out somebody who has a question i'll get on my public because i i'm in stocks and i get on there and somebody has a question i'll help them out just so I'm doing something positive. So I'm not trying to beat somebody over for five bucks or get over on somebody. You just really, it comes down to your people, places and things. And if that's why back in the day, they used to tell them go to three meetings a day because they figured you'd be so busy. You wouldn't have the time to go get high. But in my case, that's not true because there's been months I've done no meetings. I've just kept the same toolbox that I've kept all these years. And by toolbox, I mean things I learned in AA, in AA meetings. And my 10-month program, my counselor in there was tremendous. But the staff were all assholes that wanted to treat you like you were in prison rather than in a drug facility. But they chose to send me to a level six, but they were gonna send me to a level 10 in Miami for 18 to 24 months. And my attorney said, yeah, right, not under his condition. You're not doing that, we'll sue you. So instead, they decided to do a level six, and and I, I need to get into this too with you because I took ecstasy for the first time when I was eleven, and in Florida, ecstasy was everything. Like everybody was doing it. So my brother threw some party when my parents went out of town, and he gave me and my buddy one to try. And I got so messed up that I I ran around butt naked. I was, uh, he had like 150 people in our backyard. They're all laughing. Like it's, I could go into story after story. Like I have had one ride that nobody could forget. And you know, I could even delve into a quick little story real quick about me 
you know, getting deserted New Orleans and being on the streets in New Orleans for a couple of days when I was living in Florida at the time. But we'd went there for Mardi Gras. My brother gets locked up in New Orleans, and here I am. I took about 12 or 13 Xanax bars, and I'm so out of my mind that I woke up leaning against some statue, and something in me, I guess, told me, carry your bag around. So I had my little bag of clothes with me. And then later on in the day, my bag of clothes gets stolen from me. And then I have a guy from a church who walks up to me, and he says, you look like you need some help. And it was like a sign from God. Like he he literally took me under his wing, and he brought me to some warehouse they were having a church function at and he literally saved my life though and then my boy my brother's fiance at the time ended up you know her mom was furious that michael got locked up in new orleans so she ended up coming and picking us up and we you know Took it. I and to this day, I feel, I feel like he should have at least kept his mind right to make sure. I didn't even know which hotel we had a hotel, and I didn't even know where it was at, and I couldn't have found it being high off of twelve Xanax bars. Like being on that many bars, you're you're so out of your mind that. You can't do anything. Like, and you know, I'm laughing because there's going to be people watching this thinking that you're just making up this as we go. Oh, this ain't, ain't nothing made up about a, this. This is true. No, I, it's such, it's such a, it's an unbelievable story that you're still alive. It's an unbelievable story that you weren't kidnapped at a young age when you were out wandering around. Um, it's just an unbelievable story that you're at 34 years old and You've been given all these extra chances to become a better person. And, and you, you've chosen the better road, not bitter road. And there's something, there's something about the essence of that that I think people watching this can say, you know what, I haven't been through half of what Dan's been through. And I haven't been through half of what Jeff's been through. But they both seem to be on the better road. And so I'm trying to tell everybody with this podcast and with the stories I tell that there are people out there that have tremendous painful stories yet they've chosen yet they've chosen their suffering and they've chosen not to suffer as much as they probably you know as, as the average person probably would or at least you and i've decided not to use these as excuses to define us and, and that's, that's key and if i can can, yeah. I, can i put in one more little story okay yeah absolutely me me and my best friend joey had spent the night at my brother's house. Well, him and his friend went to pick up some more cocaine in Panama City, which was nearly 60 miles from where we were living at. And he already had a shoebox full of cocaine. So out of nowhere, there's a knock at the door and me being high as a kite on coke, I answer. I don't even look out the peephole. I'm thinking maybe it's my brother. They came right back because they forgot something. And next thing I know, I have a gun shoved in my mouth. And it's a guy with a, a mouthful of gold teeth. And he's telling me he's about to rob me. And he wants me to show him where the where the shit's at and he's not leaving till he gets it and so he walks me upstairs with a gun to the back of my head because he I, he he had to have had somebody tell him exactly where it was at because they literally walked me upstairs with the gun to my head and walked me straight into my brother's room and straight into his closet where it was at and they got it and it was almost like they had somebody keeping my brother away because 
they were there for two hours feeding me and my friend Joey cocaine with a gun pointed at us. I guess thinking we would be so high we wouldn't remember anything or I don't know if they were hoping we would overdose or so they wouldn't go down for murder. And not only that, he took my Xbox, he took all my games, he took, you know, I brought my stuff over, I'll spend the night with my brother, I didn't think I had to worry about something like that. But to have a still gun stuck in your mouth to where it literally chips your teeth and he cocks the trigger, that's one of the scariest moments you could ever imagine, especially as a 13 year old child. And I, my friend Joey was so horrified that I think it's even affected him to this day. And I haven't talked to my friend Joey in, in quite some time, but he's doing good. He's, he's got his own business. He's, he's doing masonry work. He's still living in Port Walton Beach. Dude, if you were a cat, you'd have, like, one life left, man. <laughs> uh, actually, I'd be I mean... out of lives, because uh, there was another time. I can tell you, I could just keep well, going. Of course, of course there is. Of course there's another time. <laughs> well, there's another time, and it was... Holy cow. It was me and my cousin, John Michael, were riding through some of the shadiest parts of Houston you can imagine. Because John Michael... He's my cousin. He's been in prison a couple of times, but he ain't nowhere near as bad as my brother. And he, for some reason, leaves me in his car and runs into the apartment complex. And then I have this big guy walk up to me and just gets in the car like he owns it. And has a gun pointed at me and starts telling me to take off my jewelry. And he's going through the glove compartment while he's doing it. He's got his gun like this while he's looking through everything. And and then my cousin just, thank goodness, comes out. And he had a gun, too. And he had it pointed right at his head. And he said, if you do not get out of my car right now, I'll blow your brains out. And he got out of the car, gave me all my jewelry back, and we got out of that. But that was another scary, dramatic experience. Did you tell him about the guy who shot his brains out upstairs? And um, if you want me to, I can tell you about my friend Cody. And um, yeah, I think I think we talked about that at the pre-interview. Um, yeah, I remember, I remember you talking about the suicide, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, he was my best friend. We had we had spent the night with each other probably 500 plus times. Everywhere we went, we went together. He was, you know, so out of his mind that he, he had the gun like this at his head. And he was screaming at his fiance, and he was pretty much like, I'll do it, I'll do it. And he tapped it too many times, and it went off, and I seen his brains fly all over the wall. And I seen his white body just slump to the floor, and it was like, as the seconds went, he was getting whiter and white. He instantly died. And I had to make the phone call to his mom and tell her. And she was so beside herself. She immediately started screaming, Oh my God, this ain't happening. This is a joke. And I'm saying, No, no, it's not. No, it's not. I'm trying to tell you it's happened. It's done. I'm sorry to tell you. And I spent over an hour and a half trying to comfort her while I just yeah. witnessed all of it. Like, and it was so traumatic to see your own best friend, somebody that, in my opinion, he looked up to me because he didn't have a brother. Right, and right. He, he was right, a right. year younger than me. 
So I was kind of like his mentor. And I was sitting there telling him, like, man, are you joking? Like, you don't, uh, come on. And he was just so out of his and it's, it's it's that's that's a big reason that that was probably one of the last factors that made me get sober. You know, as as you're telling all these stories, Daniel, I have to go back to when I wrote my book. And as I was researching stories about Seth, everything from burglaries to, you know, fights and arrests, because he was incarcerated as well. And then he was in prison as well before he died. I kept thinking to myself, how many stories don't I know? I mean, this is probably 5% of what I know about my son from the ages of 15 to 23. And I have to think, I have to think he had many similar brushes with getting robbed himself or other, you know, he was only got caught a couple times committing crimes, but think of the ones that you get away with. I mean, for every, every 40 crimes you commit, you maybe get caught once. I don't know what the statistics are, but um, let, let me go back to how we can wrap this up because uh, this is absolutely, I, I think to get to why your story is encouraging is you have to get through the muck, I guess, is how I term it in my book. I mean, I, to get to the good stuff, my 12 daily steps and my my 10 principles of life I wrote with my son in my book. By the way, I'm going to get a copy out to you if I haven't already. I can't remember if I mailed it yet. <laughs> let me know if I if I did. Um but I wanted, to, I wanted to end the book with an uplifting message that there is another road to always take. And you've, you've, you've kind of mentioned early on about disease, but you also mentioned the word choice about 15 times. And that's the name of my nonprofit, The Choices Network. And it's important to me that things may be a disease, but you ultimately, you ultimately have to activate that disease with a choice. And, and, and everything, everything needs to be activated. So if we can break things down into choice first, disease later, then so be it. But I think my reason to have you on the show is as we end this show, this hour, is what, what nugget would you give someone out there that is struggling with these either personally or somebody they love? And, and how, what's next for you? What's, what's next project or how, what are you going to try to do to get your story out there to help more people? I just, I mainly want not only your listeners, but I want everybody to know that it is an everyday battle. It is something, it doesn't have an on-off switch. It, if it was that easy, it, we would have no drug addicts. And at right. the end of the day, your child, your mom, your dad, your uncle, they have to want it. They... You can't make somebody change. They have to want to change. And they have to want 100%. they have to want it. Like I, I wanted it. That that ten month two day program that was all for all for me. That's all I needed. There's some people they just like my brother just choose not to. It's it's what yeah. it's what you do. Something I wanted to talk about real quick and then we can we can wrap this up, but um you mentioned the word battle, and I think one of the things I'm trying to do in this whole journey I've been kind of thrown into is changing the narrative and changing the stigma on, on either words we use or how we explain a situation. I, I looked at the death of my son and the death of my wife all within five years at a point in my life when I, I was at the top of the world and then I had these things taken from me as not a battle but as a, another chapter to my story to kind of absolve, to, to absorb all of this into my story as I write chapters each day of my life. And I think that's, that's a healthy way to look at these things. And that's why I quit drinking on, November, on, on December 24, 2017. Yet, I don't know how many days that is. I, I, don't, I, I don't participate myself in even using the word sober because that implies a, a fight. It, it implies a battle. I am in no battle with anybody. And that and that that's kind of how I think as I go out and talk to people is, you know what? We can keep using the words recovery and addict and sober and all these things, but I think if the numbers were getting better, then it would show evidence that this is working, but they aren't. And things are getting worse and we keep using the same angles to commit this. So I'm like, "All right, let's don't use the word battle anymore. Let's just say 
this isn't a battle. This is life. This is this is something we are offered an opportunity to learn from, not to resist. And so fighting alcohol doesn't work. You know? And so you look at alcohol as just one of many things in your life that you choose not to eat or drink, like pizza, ice cream. Maybe maybe instead of doing 50 weights, you do 100. Maybe instead of doing 100, you do 150. These are all conscious choices that you make. And just add alcohol as one of these choices. Don't make it some big, huge monster out there that you're fighting every day. That works for me. That works for me, Daniel. And I can't say it works for everybody, but I think if we just put alcohol and and all these other things on the shelf with all these other things that we have, and then not all addictions are bad. There's lots of healthy addictions as well. And And that really all this is is just another chapter to our story I don't know. Maybe that'll work for people. Uh, who knows? Maybe people um, people are going to find other ways to get themselves better. But I admire what you're doing. Uh, I think I think what you're doing what you're doing has a lot of legs. Um, I think there's a lot of people out there going to watch this. Say, holy crap, man! These two together these these guys could write a these guys could do a Netflix documentary on misery. You know. But we also have had a lot of great things happen in our lives too, man. Yes, we have. Yes, we have. You you have to be grateful for what you have. You have to be grateful for every day you wake up. You're able to open your eyes. You're able to kick yourself out of bed. You're able to make yourself a cup of coffee. There's some people out there. They're blind their whole lives. They're they're deaf their whole life. That's all they know. But that is you know at the end of the day they're still positive. And I, some of them, yeah. I'd even met one one gentleman I met in Texas. He was deaf, but he was an alcoholic. And yeah. he, he would come to the meetings, and he'd sit in the very front row. So I sat next to him one day, and I'd actually told half of my story. And he came up and hugged me after the meeting. Yeah, absolutely. And said, oh my, he said, I thought I had... He said, oh, I thought I had it bad. And, you know, he pretty much told me, thank you. And right. that made my day. Just telling that, yeah. just telling him that story. And there's a couple other people that came up and said, thank you for sharing. And It's the little things, the little tiny things. My, my whole book, the first chapter, talks about a 14-year-old that came up to me at a class I was giving a presentation about what happened. This is before my wife died. And he was 14 and he had been in out he'd been in uh, alcohol treatment, and he'd been in rehab and 14 years old. And I start my whole book with that story because that really set me on the path that I'm on. I realized, you know, age of first use is 14 in the United States. And so if we're not having these conversations with our kids at 10, at 8, you know, at, at nine about addictions and not, not necessarily heroin and overdoses, but about what you can be addicted to. What is an addiction? You know, the, the, the consequences of lying, of being deceptive, being deceptive. Um, and we can use these stories when they're younger and then morph them into substance abuse and things that, you know, even sex, things that get more important to talk about as they get more mature. Um, well, listen, I, I've really enjoyed this uh, immensely, and I've, I've, I'm going to walk away from this uh, a, a better man, and which is selfishly one of the reasons why I went down this road of living undeterred and my projects I'm on, because if I'm not helping myself first, I can't help anyone else. You know, and I heard, I heard you say that when we first talked, is that people think you're doing heroic things, but the first person you're trying to help is yourself. And I just want to tell your listeners, be a sponge. If you if you yeah. have a if you have any problem, if you have any issue, feel free. I mean, look me up. I will help you beyond belief. I will I it it's it's at the end of the day, they have to want it and be a sponge. Soak in everything you can, even if it's something as small as what you do at the end of the night. Even if it's, you know, what you're choosing to do right after work. Because I had guys I worked with, they'd go to the bar every night right after work. You want to come, man? No, I don't want to come. I told you. (laughs) And it's just, it's it's 
everyday battle and it's not yeah. it's not like we're wanting to and wanting to be right. drug addicts it's just it's sad and there are you know, you know to change your life change your environment that, that's what i tell people i mean if you if you want to exercise then either either join a gym make yourself go or buy some exercise equipment put it in your basement so you have to walk by it all all the time uh, if you want to stop drinking, if you want to stop drinking, have no alcohol in your house and don't go any, don't go anywhere where there's alcohol. If you don't think you can handle it, then don't go around it. Um, create an island, build your own island where alcohol doesn't exist. And there's a pretty good chance you won't drink. But if you're going to bars after work to hang out with your friends because you want to be social, but you're trying not to drink, it's not going to work. There's gonna, gonna work. Yeah, because there's going to be, even if you go 20 times, there might be that right, right. 20th time, one, one time you're like, yeah, yeah. oh, I'll take a shot. And then that shot yeah, yeah. ends up turning to eight shots, and you're not even able to drive yourself home. And you blew your sobriety. So, yep. and really, you got to be confident in everything you do. You have to be confident. You got to be bold. You gotta, and for some parents, they have to be straightforward. They have to be tough. They have to take it. I mean, I mean, they have to understand to the fullest that this is a disease. This is not. Well, let me let me tell you this, Daniel. You're easy to talk to. Um, anybody out there that wants to get a hold of you, uh, what's the easiest way to reach you? Uh, they can reach me at my email. It is D-R-O-S-S-87 at mail.com. They can look me up on LinkedIn. Just type in Daniel Ross. You'll see a picture of me and my grandma. I'm in a Raptors uniform. Uh, I'm, I'm a big sports fan. I have over 30 jerseys. I have 10 signed mini helmets. Like I, I chose to collect coins and gold and silver over drugs. Yeah, there you go, man. Perfect. I love. I love that. I just bought one of the nicest Alaskan chunks of gold that's on its way to me. It's a four gram piece, but I only paid a hundred and sixty dollars for it, so I got it for forty a gram. But see, but see, you have healthy, you have healthy addictions, and that, that this is where addictions. That word I hate as well because when we say addictions in the context of just talking to people, that they take it as a negative thing. Like, well, I don't want to have addictions. Well, yeah, you do. You want to have healthy addictions, you know. And have many of them and be so addicted to healthy things, you don't have time for the unhealthy addictions. You know, you're too, you're too distracted. Um, well, this is awesome, man. I, I, I appreciate it. And, and often I meet people on my podcast that are, are clinically qualified. They have the designations. They have the college degrees. They have the client base. You and I don't have any of that, dude. I mean, we, we, we have the real life stories. Now, I don't have the drug stories. I, I cannot compete with you there. But I was a compulsive gambler for many, many years, lost, lost lots of money in Las Vegas, and, and I quit in my 30s. Um, I, I've lost two people very close to me through, as, as you have as well. And I was an alcoholic as well, uh, as you were, but I've never did drugs. That's one part of this whole dynamic that's new to me that I'm learning about. I've had, I've had drugs in my life, certain people around me that have done drugs, but I, I've, I've never done drugs. I've never smoked pot. Never done cocaine, never done Xanax, any of these things. Uh, I always was afraid that I'd be Len Bias if I did drugs. I would die the first time I did it. And and it wasn't that I didn't think I'd like them. It was I knew I would love them. That that was that was the smart thing I guess I had going for me. Is I was smart enough to know, hey dude, if you do these, you're dead. And and so I never I never did drugs. But listen. Um, thanks a lot very much. I love you like a brother. I really appreciate you coming on the show. And um, as I end every show, I don't have to tell you this, but I have to tell everyone else. Uh, keep Living Undeterred. You can follow us on the Living Undeterred website. I have a blog, a podcast. I have a book available called This One's For You, An Inspirational Journey Through Addiction, Death, and Meeting that I wrote about our story. All the proceeds from everything I do goes 100% to my nonprofit. And next summer on May 9th, Daniel, we're starting the Living Undetoured U.S. Tour. 
I'm going to every state in the United States. The hope is to raise a million dollars over 92 days for mental health, substance, substance abuse, and addiction. And I'll be reaching out to you on the tour and getting your help and support. Definitely. And I'd love to be, be on another podcast and, and tell how I got on probation and that fun little part. Because <laughs> that's... Well, all you got to do... Just go on LinkedIn and do what you did to do what you did to me. Just just harass me enough that uh, I'll get you on my show. So, um, you know, that's what I did when I first came out living on the tour. I just started reaching out to people. Hey, I want to talk about what happened to me. And next thing you know, I've got so many requests coming and I have to manage them. And you talk enough. You're authentic. You're genuine. Your story is compelling. And people can say after they listen to you, wow, what I'm going through I, what I'm going through is 10% of what Daniel went through. So if he can do it, I can do it, you know? So listen, man, I'm going to let you run, but uh, I very much appreciate what you're doing and um, keep living on the turret. Okay, bud. Yes, sir. You take care of yourself and I'll stay in contact with you. And I love you. Well, keep living undeterred. I love it. 